And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us today for another great interview. This is, this is uh, by listener demand. Shout out to our guy George on Twitter. Brought, brought this up, said we should do it. And I thought it was a great idea. And our two guests were willing to hop on. And um, we've got quite an assortment with us. We've got a, a guy that is obsessed with pine cones. We've got a green chicken. Um, and then we've got a renegade RIA operator. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Doomberg to the podcast. Doomberg, thanks for joining us, pal. Zach, great to be back. Big fan, as you know, and uh, looking forward to a wonderful discussion. Fantastic. And Chase of Pinecone Macro, Chase Taylor. Our listeners are well, they're familiar with both of you guys, but, but Chase is on all the time. Chase, thanks for joining us again as well. Yeah, speaking of being on all the time, I get to talk to you all the time, but this is uh, my first time to get to talk to the Chicken of Doom. I'm pretty excited about it. At, well, yeah, I mean, that's I'm not really sure what happens when a pine cone and a chicken get together, but we're about ready to find out. <laughs> uh, so anyway, guys, I so we want to start off uh, kind of like we were talking right before we got on, kind of three different segments. Want to hit on the the, in, the you know the energy situation as a whole. Give us an update. Obviously, that's at the top of all of our minds, I think, and and probably the vast majority of our listeners as well. Then want to look at regulatory responses to that, how they can impact it. And then just want to look at the inflation scenario as a whole and kind of dig into other things that are being impacted, um, in, being impacted outside of the energy uh, uh, space. But one thing that I have found curious, guys, that I wanted to get to right out of the gate was um, oil. I, I think, you know, everybody is aware of it. There's some interesting aspects, and we'll kind of start off on more of the soft side of this argument or more of the ethereal side of it. Um, one of the things that I've been trying to wrap my head around is all of this panic and, and craziness, you know, around 100 to $115 oil. And it's a real head-scratcher for me because we were here in 2014. We were significantly higher than this in 20, 2007. Um, so there's two things about this that, that are curious to me. A, I mean – we all here on this podcast and the vast majority of listeners, I think are aware of the energy situation. And I think that everybody probably knows our views that this is really only beginning. Um, but it's, but what's odd to me is the hysteria over oil prices at this level. The other thing that's odd to me is that oil prices are hanging in at this level. Like you look at the news, you look, you look at the market, the way it is currently set up and you get news of a fire at Saudi Aram. And look, I, I'm not saying it probably won't even really impact global oil supply. So I'm not saying it's meaningful, but it still seems like oil is in this state where it's like, prove it, you know, like where, where if you ask people, you know, they're loading up on these buy the dip tech stocks and the thing they're really worried about falling out of bed is oil. Um, it, we'll go to we'll go to you first, Chase, and then go to Doomberg. But what do you make of this um, this freaking out over oil prices that are not? I mean, especially on an inflation adjusted basis, Chase. You threw something out the other day in the office when we were we spent the day together. You were saying to me that on an inflation adjusted basis, oil should probably be like two twenty, right? What is the what, what do you chalk up this freaking? Nobody was freaking out about one hundred and ten dollar oil in twenty fourteen. So what do we chalk this up to? And then B, why is there still I, – I, and, and feel free to tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm looking at this market and going, I don't really understand what's keeping it at these levels right now. So kind of hit on both of those if you would. Yeah, as far as the freaking out part, I think 
you know, just the rate of change is probably part of it. You know, we've gone a, a long way, you know, pretty, pretty quick. If you think about how long ago we were, you know, like a 50 bucks, it wasn't that long ago. So I, I think that's part of it. It just happened fast. Uh, and, and then, it, you know, when it, when it's kind of paired with seven, 8% inflation, it just seems super responsible for it. And, and it just people connect that those two things in their head. So I think that's probably part of the explanation, but you're right. Like, at the end of the day, inflation adjusted, um, or just even even historically, it, it, the price levels we're at right now are really not that big of a deal, especially especially just look at the fundamentals of kind of how fast inventories are drawing globally and, and the fact that there's kind of obviously no no clear answer to that, at least in the next you know year. So when you look at that, you look at the current pricing, it does seem to be off to me. I think I think even if we didn't have the, the war going on uh, in Ukraine, prices should probably be at least, you know, kind of where we're at right now. So, yeah, it, it definitely doesn't make sense to me. Um, so that that's kind of the way I see the freaking out part. What was, what was the second part again? Well, the, the second part of it was um, the 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 attitude that not only not only is there the freaking out, but there's this. And it and it's just odd to me because it's I mean we know how crazy market commentators can be and I but when when you listen to more of the mainstream financial media it's sort of like how long can oil stay here right <laughs> like they're yeah, well they're, that, that one's simple it's until until you know you get just massive investment and 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 you know new production and so far even even considering you know the fact that this is a very real crisis we still just had no genuine response from either the industry or from from policymakers to really make that happen so that that's been kind of stunning you the only policy response we've really seen is to kind of put a floor underneath demand not to really do anything about supply which to me is just has been stunning well that's and also not surprising at the same time i guess yeah, and Duber, we'll flip it to you, but man, yeah. this this kind of goes along with what I was saying about this. You know, you look at what California is talking about doing, and several other regulatory bodies bodies talking about doing. They're they're going to keep their thumb on production, and they're going to subsidize demand. And then you still you haven't really seen the oil market even respond to that level of news. There just seems to be well, it's one of two things, right? Either our, my outlook on oil is completely wrong, or this market is. Just you know it, what it looks like to me is that this market is just as out of touch or just as detached from reality as it relates to a lot of the commodity thing. You know, a lot of the commodities, energy, is as detached as it is on the other side of things. You know, in terms of valuation of tech stocks, what do you what do you ascribe that to? How, how do you explain that? So let me back up a bit. First of all, real pleasure to be here, Chase, and honor to be on the podcast with you. I'm a big fan of your work and. Um, I would say our clients in our in our consulting business pay us to think creatively and to answer just this these types of questions in ways that might not be right, but at least make you think about it differently. So if you don't mind, maybe I'll answer your original question that you you put to Chase in the same way that we've been describing our best way to explain this to our clients, and it's as follows. Um, so vis-a-vis the uh, hysteria, we would argue that um, two trends of the past decade or undeniable, which is polarization of our politics, which has driven our political class to focus on managing to the message and managing to the optics as opposed to managing to the outcomes and providing real leadership. And we're seeing a lot of that now. Uh, But second is the um, massive acceleration of income inequality. And so $120 oil today 
hits the marginal voter, you know, at the median income level, much harder than it did in 2014 or in the last financial crisis because of that ongoing increase in um, income inequality. And with regards to fundraising as a politician, of course, the rich people make all the difference. But when it comes to voting, um, the median voter is the swing voter and the swing voter is in much worse shape today than uh, he and she were um, a decade ago. So if you have politicians managing to the optics, then you get what we call platitudes, and platitudes are going to run 60 miles an hour into a, the brick wall of physics. Um, and so that it, it's just inevitable that that this is um, that this is going to happen, you know. And so it's it's a really interesting time. And then why are oil prices where they are? We have a slightly different and and perhaps provocative interpretation which is there is no global oil price, of course. There's the price of WTI and there's the price of Brent and there's how oil is actually traded between, between producers and consumers, which includes you know um, sometimes benchmarking to those indices and sometimes not. Um, we believe, and one of the potentially provocative trade ideas that we've advised our clients to at least consider is looking at the possibility that the U.S. might reimpose an export ban which would cause a substantial decline in WTI, which is the predominant way that most of our listeners are probably invested, even in oil, whether they know it or not, versus Brent, uh, which would then suffer the double blow of, of decreasing supply uh, from Russia and also from the U.S. And as crazy and as insane as a export ban from the U.S. would be, um, if you have politicians that are increasingly polarized, managing to the message and worried about the median voter who is suffering disproportionately, it might make significant sense to go back to the pre-2015 era when Obama lifted the export ban. And if you have an export ban, then the spread between WI and Brent is going to be the most one of the more interesting charts in the world. And so that's how we're looking at it. It's not totally surprising to us that there's a lot of uncertainty in the market vis-a-vis um, -vis oil. I do agree with you. 120 is cheap. Um, and based on fundamentals and based on the uh, disruption of the war of Russia-Ukraine, we think it should be much higher. It might eventually get there. But there is this wild card of a relatively energy-independent U.S., given political constraints, polarization, and uh, income inequality, deciding to take its football and go home. And that is a wrench that the market is probably discounting, uh, and that's why we see some of the price action that we see today. Maybe. No, that's as good as any explanation. I, I've, And I really hadn't even... Well, let's see, this is why we listen to the chicken, man. I, I hadn't really thought about that angle and, and the way the export ban would play into that. But here's the, here's the question on a geopolitical basis. If they reinstituted that export ban, aren't they just pushing? I mean, that would be, in my opinion, that would be amplifying Putin's leverage, wouldn't it? it it's terrible policy. But again, we are operating in a world where we have uh, physics deniers in public office who are concerned about the next election. And uh, a true leader would attack this problem differently, but we have long since, you know, passed the days where we have ethically, um, you know, ethically pure, uh, honest leadership in public office. We have distilled up um, nothing more than a series of uh, grifters who, and ethically questionable people who are willing to to sort of, you know, um, do things that we, you, I, and, and Chase would not be willing to do to hold public office so they can catch a, you know, a big score on the back end when they, when they resign or retire from public office. Um, and so I, I think 
you know, again, we're we, our bread and butter is thinking outside of the box and and not worrying about being wrong, but focusing on rethinking a problem in a way that makes you look at things perhaps differently. And and per your original question that you posed to Chase, this is this is what we've been telling our clients is. Uh, we, we view that our political class is managing to the message. Uh, income inequality is driving a lot of decision-making because at the margin, they decide elections. And uh, we wouldn't put it past this administration to to reinstitution, uh, you know, to, to, to re-implement a, an export ban on oil, regardless of the economic consequences. I mean, I think the price of gas would soar, but they would manage that message, um, you know, and lie about it. And, and, and a good chunk of the population would believe them. Yeah, they, well, and that's been another amazing thing to watch um, it is the policy response because every single thing, every single proposition, every single idea, every single thing I see floated out there is just going to exacerbate the problem. And, and so I, whenever I see a situation, I'll throw this to Chase. Whenever I see a situation like this, it, it makes me think one of two different things. Are, are they that stupid or do they know something we don't? I, I just – the idea of keeping your thumb on production, and subsidizing demand in this situation just seems like madness to me. Do you think that there is a – Chase, do you think there's a method to the madness or do you think that this is just muscle memory from the last 15 years that whenever we encounter a problem – or whenever the we encounter anything that makes the electorate uncomfortable, that we just anesthetize them with free cash. Is that is that what's happening? Yeah. So, like, I, I think what Duberg hit on there is really important with the political polarization. And if you think about, you know, what you have to do to win a primary, especially and especially on the national level, you have to have a lobotomy and you have to go all the way to the extreme of of your tribe in order to to make it. And they and you. Yes, like folks move to the middle after the election some, but you, you kind of always have to like have one eye on that on that primary uh, voter, um, which is extremely different from that median voter that should be more important. And it, most of the time it is, but but just a little different during primary season. So I think one of the reasons we've seen policy be as bad as it's been, especially verbally, is because you you have to play to that uh, that base that's that has an extreme view and and wouldn't know the physics it probably knows the physics less than, than the politicians do which seems impossible um so i think that's where some of the uh, the narrative based issues come from but i i do think if you look at uh, the energy secretary going to houston and going to an oil event and the way I, the way i see it like what she did was she used progressive language and couched it all. But what she really said was the equivalent of drill, baby drill. If you equalize for the political base that she has to kind of keep in mind. Um, so I do think that was, that was important. I think, I think the white house, it, it probably understands this a little better than, than we think. And to their, I guess, credit, they have been talking to um, the industry a, a lot recently Um so maybe things can get marginally better, but they're they're going to always have to kind of play to that base that at the end of the day is a gatekeeper to even get into the election cycle. Um, so th I think that's that's something important to keep in mind that not obviously like if you just judge on policy to this point, that's enough to realize they don't know what they're doing. But I think some folks at least kind of overcorrect for the narrative when 
if you kind of look at it through that lens, it, you, you can kind of ignore some of the noise around the edges. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the, the import van or the export van. I think that, I think it's interesting. I've had a lot of, a lot of folks ask me about it. I could easily be wrong and I hate to disagree with Thunberg, but I, I kind of don't think it's going to happen. Uh, one of the major reasons is just Europe. I mean, we've basically tried to have Europe on side geopolitically for the last 30 years. And we've essentially just been losing them slowly, but surely the entire time. They don't really want to spend on defense. They don't really want to play ball when it comes to things like energy policy. Uh, and then all of a sudden this, this invasion has the entirety essentially of the Western world and, and, and especially Western Europe kind of united and on our side. But, but part of the, the cost they have to pay for that is, you know, this, this energy crisis, which obviously they brought on themselves in a major way. But if we were to, you know, I'm sure we pushed them around a lot to make sure that they were on side with us as far as all these sanctions and everything. So if we turned around and said, oh, by the way, like you guys can't have Russian oil and can't have our oil either. I think that would, it would definitely put significant risk on something we accidentally achieved after 30 years of trying hard to achieve it. And that alone, I think, is a reason. Uh, it, it's a, it's a definitely a big hill to climb to to, to do that export ban. And, and the other thing is, I, you know, we're, if you just kind of look at net oil exports imports, it, it's basically flat for the U.S. I mean, we import a little, we export a little, just because we need a certain kind of oil, and other people need a certain kind of oil, mostly. Uh, so, from that standpoint, yeah. I, again, I don't think it would happen. And I'm, I, know, I know a lot of people were looking for the nat, nat gas side and. A lot of policymakers, a lot of the ones you would expect, were calling for a, a, a nat gas export ban, and it's really clear to me at this point that we're going nowhere near that. Uh, as Dumber pointed out, LNG is becoming like green to everybody. It's kind of this, you know, it, it, it's taking all the headlines right now, and we're we're doing our best to boost so, exports to LNG or to Europe as much as possible. But uh, yeah, go ahead, Dumber. Yeah, let me let me clarify. So to be clear, I'm not saying it's likely. I'm saying that the market has to assign a probability to it. And that probability is not zero. There are yeah, path absolutely. functions. There are path functions that get us to the point where, if if I could assure you, that if gasoline is is the national average gasoline price in the U.S. is six dollars a gallon, um, the Biden administration will do something. And one yeah. of the things they might do is uh, an export ban. And so, in the event of an export ban, you imagine WTI drops to 60 or 50 because, as you say, we are pretty flush here. And the only reason why WTI is over $100 a barrel is because we are in interconnected with the globe. And if we disconnect from the globe, um, certainly there'll be a lot of pain at the refinery level. But I think the knee-jerk reaction would be a spike in Brent and a collapse in WTI. And the expected value of WTI of wherever, wherever it's trading today, uh, you know, 110, 115, whatever, has to include the unlikely possibility, but not the zero chance that you wake up tomorrow and you're 50 bucks below where you are today. And so the market is a, is a great discounter of such probabilities. And, and so, you know, again, I wouldn't say that that is what is coming. When our clients ask us why isn't all higher than it is today, that is as good an answer as we can come up with. What do you guys – okay, so this is deep dive or, or kind of digging into it a little bit more, and, and uh, I may be off track. But when you lay out that scenario, my first knee-jerk reaction is thinking, boy, that makes Canadian producers a lot more attractive to me. Correct. 
Okay, mm-hmm. there we go. So I just want to make sure I was on the right track there, right? Uh, the canary in the coal mine for us is Western Canadian Select um, and, the, um, and that spread. That's one of the things we look at um, every day. There's lots of signs, of course. Um, and, and I do think LNG, as, as uh, Chase said, um, you know, Biden was in Europe this morning cutting a deal to, um, to radically increase our supply obligations to Europe. That, you know, we've written about this. We've advocated for this. We'd l- love nothing more than for Biden to say whatever he says for politics, but actually do what's needed to be done for the practicality of physics. And you see today that natural gas uh, here in the U.S., you know, Henry Hub is is trading uh, at a very seasonally high price of more than $5.50 per million BTU. We think that number is probably going to go higher. Um, and so I, I do think, by the way, back to the, the very beginning of this discussion, like we, Joe Biden is a senator that we've been aware of for a very long time before he was vice president, before he was president. He comes from Delaware. Delaware is the home of DuPont. Joe Biden practically understands how the economy actually works. We come from industry. You know, the old joke with Joe Biden was uh, he was Joe Biden, D, comma, DuPont. Um, and so he, he, he is not unaware of the practicalities of physics. I just worry that he operates in a system where um, the need to um, the need to placate the polarization is such that he may have dug himself into a deeper hole than he thought he was going to. Uh, I do actually think that Joe Biden is a patriot and that Joe Biden cares about um, Americans and cares about blue collar workers. And um, and so ultimately, I think we will get to a spot where we do the right thing. But if you ask me sort of how can you explain where we are today, I do think that the market has to discount these these um, low probability, high impact events. Yeah, we, we, what's um, and I don't want to get too far off the off the track here, but, you know, and, it, and it's short lived, but just and, and you can tell me if this relates or whatever, but just one of the stunning moves I've seen over the last week and a half, two weeks is looking at the breathtaking move in rates. And the only thing going up as fast as rates is tech stocks. It, it's just I it, and I wonder and this kind of gets me back to my original point. I don't want to get off on a tech tangent or anything like that, but it just seems like this market is in a place where literally it does the opposite of what makes sense on a financial investment basis, right? Like, you know, you've got this situation where you got crude kind of stalled out at that 110, 115 thing, rates ripping higher, and everybody's jumping into – I mean, what, what, what is it, last week and a half, two weeks? Wasn't it the, the biggest move in the – in the NASDAQ, you know, like in the last 10 years or something, except for the coronavirus back, you know, bounce back. Um, what, what do you guys, do you equate, do you equate any of this? And I, and so I'm kind of going back to the same question, but do you equate any of the stall, you know, this, this, this kind of tepid oil price considering the backdrop? Do you have any, do you think it has anything to do with just kind of the, where the market is in general today? Just kind of this disconnected, uh, you know, I kind of look at it as kind of fantasy land market. It, it just, I mean, if you guys would have told me, for instance, that we'd see like a 10% bounce back in the NASDAQ uh, over a week and a half where, wh- where's the 10 year gone in the last two weeks? I mean, it's, jeez, uh, what is it? I mean, you, yeah, well, I mean, you're up like almost 50 basis points. Um, wait, how, how do you, am I getting too granular and looking at things, you know, through my value eye too much or do you think that this kind of general market disconnectedness is playing into energy prices at all? 
Doomberg. So I, well, Doomberg, okay, you can yeah. follow it up, and then we'll have Chase answer. You bet. So, I, again, this is another example of a, a classic type of problem that is posed to us where we try to think outside the box. So to the American investor, the 10-year rates skyrocketing would lead you to think fundamentally at high-growth stocks that have earnings way out in the future would be discounted to much lower values today and that those stocks should sell off. But concurrent with interest rates rising, there is also the phenomenon of what we wrote about on a piece called, you know, on the cusp of an economic singularity. We have taken a baseball bat to the beehive and where the bees go and how they behave is utterly unpredictable. And so you could be seeing um, international buyers rushing to get exposure to U.S. equities mm. because it's the it's the cleanest, dirty shirt in the closet to, to, to take a, um, a much borrowed metaphor. Um, and so the flows dictate the price. The interest rate moves dictate the fundamentals. But if there's anything we've learned in the last half decade is that the disconnect between fundamentals and price can rise to catastrophic levels. And so the last thing you want to be doing is sort of exposing yourself on the short side because you're convinced that the proper price must be much lower than we are today. Um, and so when the U.S. sanctioned and the European sanctioned you know, the Russian reserves, what did that mean for um, all manner of players in the international money game and where they end up deciding to park the incremental dollar, which is how prices are set, is just, it's just not modelable. And so, you know, in, in, a, in a singularity, the rules of physics break down. And, and the reason why we use the word singularity on, in that piece is it's, it, it, once you are standing next to a black hole, you don't know and can't model what's on the other side because in this case, the laws of economics have broken down. So our standard belief that rising interest rates are bad for growth stocks might not be true because U.S.-based growth stocks might be the place where the incremental money goes in a scenario where we've redefined the property rights of international money. Uh, but I'm not saying that's what's going on. I'm saying that's a possible explanation for what's going on. No, it's it's funny you bring that up. I mean, uh, Marcos Bueno has been on the show with us a bunch of time. He manages our algorithmic portfolio. He and I were having an extensive conversation about this just yesterday. And one of the things I po- poised to him, because we're both, you know, scratching our heads over this move. And I said, maybe this is just foreign money flowing in because, you know, dollars rallying. The world is getting, becoming increasingly uncertain by the day. Kind of kind of makes me think of our old buddy, Brent Johnson. Uh, you know, the dollar yep. milkshake theory, right? Dollar goes up. And um, and maybe that's what's occurring. It's just odd to me that it's occurring when there are so many insanely attractive investment opportunities, you know, on the other side that have valuations, quality balance sheets, macroeconomic wins at their back. Um, but like you said, I you know, and this is something that I think that all of us have probably been looking at and observing and talking about for a really long time. And, you know, maybe it's kind of like beating a dead horse, but I I think the other thing that's being unveiled right now is just how upside down central banks have, 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 you know, the, the, the ripple effects that they've left here in the global economy and in the global financial markets are just, I, you know, I I think it truly is probably going to take us years to unwrap, right? Doomberg. Oh, sorry. I thought you were tossing that one to Chase. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's a, um. It, 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 one of the things about chaotic systems is they are sensitively dependent on initial conditions and they're very difficult to model. And the global economy, intercurrency flows, um, allocations between equities and debt, um, 
and commodities. Um, you know, back to Mike Green's whole point about you know passive investment. All of these currents are really hard to model, and so if you're only measuring one of the currents, you can get yourself off sides. Yeah, um, and so that that's my, that's the one thing that we've been cautioning our readers and our, and our clients against is falling into the traps of the old rules. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bit of a cop out to say like the rules have changed. So don't, you know, you can't predict it. Um, but at the same time, like if your traditional signals aren't working, it's probably an indication that your model is more broken than the market is. Right. Right. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't know, on the flip side, Chase, and I'll kind of throw this one back at you. This is something that you and I have been talking a lot about for a long time, and I think we're both in agreement that we just thought, you know, especially with what we saw going on this year in the NASDAQ, and then we just said, hey, when rates take off, this stuff's going to get slaughtered. <laughs> Little so, did we know. It's interesting, and I think what Doomberg said has a lot of explanatory power, um, <clears throat> if you really think about it. And one of the things I would, I would kind of expect to see if that is the case would be something that we are seeing and that's dollar yen blowing out where you would think maybe a lot of Japanese investors are having to grab dollars so they can go buy U.S. assets, which, I mean, at this point is usually going to be, you know, mega tech, mega cap tech. And what so but I do think you you can still look at that, you know, kind of cash flow model and like in versus rates, the discount rate. and, And you would expect to see some pain. And if you look at ARC, we do see pain. And obviously it's bounced a little this week, but versus the NASDAQ, it actually hasn't. So if you look at the spread, say, versus just the NASDAQ or the mega cap tech names versus something like ARC, that's actually performing great. So that to me, like that explains, okay, big money comes in. It's not really going to go buy ARC. It's going to buy the, you know, the mega mega cap stuff. And, you know, to your point, like there's some great stuff to buy, but institutions aren't going to touch that stuff. Uh, most of them have a mandate to leave, you know, extractive industries alone. So that that stuff, that's why that stuff stays cheap. That and you know the the passive explanation we were just talking about, Mike Green and in and you know what Doomberg is talking about, how you know a lot of things have gotten really hard to model and a lot of people's models are broken. But I I think you know Mike's models, <laughs> if if you just kind of look at his, you know, even if it's just you know like a a, a toy model of of you know just how passive works that that still makes a lot of sense. And that still seems to really be uh, driving a lot of what we have. And I think, you know, to complement, you know, what Doomberg's saying with like kind of a systems thinking model, if you, if you look at the structure uh, kind of beneath the surface and it, it actually makes a lot of sense of, of the way the winners, the winners, you know, get more and the losers get less. And that's why, uh, you know, oil, oil companies are still radically undervalued. And I, I think, I think you know, to, not to go too far on a side tangent, but that's that's one of the reasons that they're not producing more is because their share prices are radically undervalued. So that that signal that they're looking for that it makes sense for them to to go out and and, and spend and invest is not there, and it's it's so hard for it to become to you know to be there because of losers getting less and winners getting more, and until something kind of breaks that reinforcing loop, then it, it's just so difficult to change it. Yeah, it's it's a it it. it... And I, and I don't, you know, we've talked about this in great length on the show before, but as an investor, you know, that, uh, you know, that does look for some fundamental value and some fundamentals. It's just, I I continually find myself looking at the market today and 
you know, we're having a good year, um, but and we've had a good run. Um, speaking of our portfolio, so it's not like we're not, you know, our model's not broken. I just spend time looking at this and going, I, I don't, I don't know, and I'm not sure that anybody really does. I'm not really sure what we're looking at when we look at markets anymore. I mean, it's clear to me that that fundamentals and cash flow do not play the role that they have in the past. Uh, it makes sense to me that that you know central bank activities and government activities have played a very large role in that. Um, it's just hard to know where we go from here, considering the backdrop with any level of confidence. Is it not? So I, can I jump in? And yeah, you bet. So I want to build on what Chase just said, which I think is a really critical point, and maybe again give you guys a slightly different way to look at it. If you look at the response to the price escalations in the commodity sector, especially in the shale patch, what we're seeing is the publicly traded companies are not responding because of the exact reasons that Chase has articulated, but the privately held companies are. And, um, you know, this is an accident of how the Doomberg team participates in the markets. We, we earn money in fiat, we save by buying real assets, and we invest privately where we feel like we can have an impact on the outcome. What we're seeing is because the public markets are a little bit broken in the sense that there's this massive disconnect between fundamentals and mark-to-market accounting, in the private sector, it's dividends and liquidity exits that drive behavior. And so in the private sector, the privately held companies that might have, you know, um, a mix of shareholders that are interested in seeing the the growth of their investments um, be manifested in the forms of dividends and ultimately maybe a, an exit liquidity event like a merger or a sale. Um, we are seeing the more traditional responses to um, the price signals that the the market is 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 sending to the commodity space. And so, um, I was very interested in an article. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, but may have been maybe Bloomberg, where privately held shale operators are making bank right now because they have um, torqued up their drilling and leaned into the market in these high prices and they aren't tarred by the you know the uh, pressure to focus on free cash flow returns like the publicly traded companies are and if the if the public markets are broken in at least part of the markets, then you would expect that the private market would lean into that inefficiency to create alpha for their accredited investors that can participate in such entities. And so I, I do think that um, if you focus the totality of your analysis to the public markets, you're going to miss a big part of the picture. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. And I, I, we've seen a lot of that same. Okay, so pivoting back, and we'll start with Chase on this one, uh, pivoting back to the um, the oil markets and energy markets specifically, I saw something the other day, on uh, and one of the one of you two, I'm sure, will know this. I saw something the other day that that jet fuel consumption is still something like two, was it two million barrels? Is it was it two million barrels a day or two? Does that sound two, right? Yeah, yeah two million barrels a day lower than it was in 2019. Yeah, that is correct. Okay, so that's another thing that is really interesting to me. You see all of these things playing out in oil markets. I believe we just had greater gas consumption here in the U.S. in the month of March than we did in August of last year, Chase. Was that correct as well? Uh, I don't remember what that was now. That might be correct. Okay. So oh, it, yeah, maybe, yeah. It, it was, it was the, um, the, highest, yeah, the highest gasoline consumption since August. Okay. 
I just got back uh, with my lovely wife uh, for a little trip we took for our anniversary. And we really didn't, nature of our job and different family things going on, we didn't really stall uh, in terms of our travel during the COVID thing. We, 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 we still popped around quite a bit. Um, the, the, the scene in airports, on airplanes, it could not have been different. I mean, everything was bloody crowded. You listen to the airlines talking about how booked they are out, hosp- or hotel bookings. I think this could be the biggest, consum- the biggest fuel consumption summer of all time, especially with the, um, you know, especially with all the COVID restrictions uh, rolling off. What there and there really? Correct me if I'm wrong, but there really is no magic card to pull out in terms of oil supply, or for that matter, natural gas over the next five to six months. A is there, and then B. What does this do to this market when this jet fuel consumption comes back to a normal level? I mean, all I see when I look out at the environment is, oh, my good God, if you think we're sucking inventories now, what's it going to look like in July? Yeah, and, d- and despite that 2 million barrels, like, you know, being down globally, if you, so one of the major challenges when it comes to oil is, is actually products, so whether it's jet fuel, you know, or, or gasoline or, or diesel, like, there's a there's a major major crisis in and and refined products. A perfect example is jet fuel. Jet fuel inventories are at a ten year low, so you know that it's just that much bigger of a challenge as that demand comes back. And you know I'm I'm in Tacoma, Washington, with you right now, and I flew in from D.C. and my flight was 100 percent full with over 20 people on standby, hoping to get a spot. They were offering 500 dollars vouchers for anyone giving up a spot because they overbooked, had too much weight. So a perfect example, like demand demand is definitely there. Um, but yeah, so jet fuel, that diesel is like literally a, a global crisis of there's going to be folks running out of diesel around the world. And obviously diesel is used in, heavily in industry and for moving stuff. So that's a, that's a really big deal. It's something that uh, is only getting attention in kind of the niche areas of, of financial media. So that's something to definitely keep an eye on. But, but yeah, like that, that's just one, that's just one area where there's going to be a lot of demand that's kind of still left to come back. Um, and we're not really prepared to deal with it. Yeah, Doomberg, what do you, what do you, what do you, mean? Sorry, I, is sorry. there, is there any way we get to July where this situation isn't drastically worse? So I agree with Chase um, at a high level, but I have a slightly different interpretation of some of the data. So um, we have to partition airline travel between domestic and international okay. and between leisure and business. And I think we are seeing a massive return of domestic leisure, which can give you the impression that um, things are perhaps a little stronger than they were. I do think that international travel, because of the the uh, smorgasbord of uh, vaccine and testing requirements vis-a-vis COVID, has still not lifted internationally to the point where that is smooth. And you look at China relocking down. Um, and then if you look at the TSA numbers in the U.S., which is something we've been following very carefully, we're still not at 2019 levels. And so what you're seeing on the crowded planes is the airlines have correctly responded to supply demand imbalances by reducing the supply of airplanes and filling up the ones that they will fuel up um, and run. I do think that there is slack incremental demand for domestic leisure travel in the summer of 22. But the real game changer would be a reopening of international travel. 
Now, having said that, a current that works in the in the in the demand side is the rerouting of planes to circumvent Russian airspace. So, a very large chunk of uh, international travel, the planes that are flying, no longer can circumvent Russian airspace to go from uh, takeoff to destination, and that is adding um, flight hours per you know per passenger. That is that is changing the the historical models that you need to reconsider.、Um, I have flown you know, internationally hundreds of times, and and probably half of those flights involved at one point circumventing Russian airspace. And if planes need to be rerouted around that, that's more gas、um, and that's more jet fuel. But I agree wholeheartedly with Chase's assessment that you know people think of oil and gas as the same thing, and they're not. They're literally completely different nodes in the value chain. A barrel of oil produces. All manner of things, including chemical feedstocks and jet fuel and gasoline,、um, and in diesel. And the piece we're publishing tomorrow, of, you know, farmers on the brink. We we borrow heavily from、um, Javier Blas's editorial on diesel、mm-hmm. and and the waving of that flag.、Um, in, for example, the natural gas crisis in Europe has caused、um, the economics of refining oil into diesel to be, you know, basically. Uh, money losing for the refiners, and they stop doing it, and that's creating a, a, a global shortage of diesel that is going to crush the economy in a way that、um, few are modeling today. And so,、um, there's always sort of currents under as we this kind of a theme of this podcast, which is what are the the currents below the surface that are driving the water levels.、Um, I do think that、uh, leisure is going to come back big and strong, but in, But the real demand driver for sort of jet fuel would be、uh, return to、um, flawless international travel, and I don't see that coming on the horizon anytime soon. And that could be the other thing we'd have to think about too, Dumberg. And feel free to disagree with me、uh, again if 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 that's the case. But、um, <clears throat> that may be permanently impaired, or or yep, right. I mean, the, the, this... I, I think business travel is permanently impaired. I, I think the、uh, the Zoom generation. The、corporations have, out of necessity, realized just how much business travel was wasted,、mm-hmm. and、um, and I do you know we have many many contacts in industry. That's one of our unique contributions to the content creator space, and、um, none of the contacts that we interact with on a daily, weekly, monthly basis give any indication that、uh, other than、um, business travel was wasted pre-COVID, and they're not they, they just can't afford. That competitive leakage of、um, of gratuitous travel for glad handing and、uh, team building、uh, of the past, I think that is permanently impaired. Now, again, leisure travel might come back even beyond that because people have been stuck in their homes, and and the, the human spirit is is adventurous and it is interpersonal and it is you know、um, leisure and it is it's work hard, play hard, and so you know how those currents ultimately net out is unknowable. Yeah.、Uh, any well, hold on. So let let's let's move a little bit down the.、Um, I'll not skip to a different topic, but just attack it from a little bit different angle. I I, I want to get both your takes on how easy of a problem or how 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 arduous of a problem and、uh, this is going to be to fix in terms of energy supply in the long run. I there were some really interesting comments made recently by the Occidental CEO. Who's an incredibly accomplished, very smart woman、uh, who clearly really understands,、um, you know, the, the industry, 
And one of the things that she was talking about was that not only is there an issue here, but that everybody has this attitude that, you know, you guys, Doomberg, you've written a lot about it. Chase has written a lot about this. Um, but it even, and, and, and I was well aware of this scenario as well, but her, her words caught me off guard a little bit too, that she said, look, it's, it's, you know, is for like talking about shale, right? There were constraints with shale. The, the cost of shale was somewhat prohibitive. You know, you, you had structural costs on average, somewhere around that $65 a barrel uh, region in the shale, shale oil fields. Uh, and the point she was making is that, that the cost has gone up. They, they've been essentially high grading their, their, their best wells, their most profitable wells for the last several years. Um, and that the cost structure is rising. Um, and you know, depletion rates have, have increased and, and efficiency of the wells is down and all those different things. Um, giving all of that, looking at that back, looking at that part of it, the backdrop of, of the, you know, the shortage in general on a global basis, assuming that, well, and this is a huge assumption and one that I am certainly not going to hold my breath, uh, waiting for, but uh, assuming there is some sanity or, or, or reason um, injected back into energy policy. How big of a problem is this and how long uh, will we be dealing with this issue on a structural basis? Chase, you can go first and then we'll go to Doomberg. Yeah. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it just depends on, on the investment and, and how fast that can happen. Uh, you know, if, if you saw the Gulf, especially Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the UAE just, you know, kind of go all in on investment, you know, soon. And then you kind of had the non-OPEC players like U.S. Shale, you just kind of keep marching higher, then it, it wouldn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, I would say more than like two two or three years, you, you could you could basically solve this problem. Uh, but, and, and that, that's, but that's a assuming, long time. That's, that, but that's, a, yeah, I mean, so Doomberg put it put it perfectly the other day on Twitter by saying like nothing moves fast in, in energy or something of that sort because that that nails it like it you, you don't just you know put a straw on the ground and get oil it it, it takes a lot of investment it takes a lot of manpower it takes a lot of engineering uh, and it takes a lot of stuff and some of that stuff isn't exactly you know in in uh, in big supply right now so but but I do think you know I think a lot of kind of the oil mega mega bulls, you know, seem to think this is, this will last decades or something. And, and, and it very well may, if we have, you know, significant missteps and, and if, you know, Russian oil weren't, weren't going to come back online. Um, but as long as Russian oil is welcome in the market in say three years and the Gulf States get serious and non OPEC gets serious, um, and you get, you know, what I think you get is a dramatic expansion in offshore, whether that be uh, West Africa off the coast of Brazil, things like that. Even in the even in the Gulf Coast in the U.S., I, that can fill significant part of this gap. But at the moment, the, the that investment just isn't there. The, the Saudis bumped this year's investment by about ten billion, but they even said like, you know, most of that's for production that at the earliest is twenty twenty three, and most of it's more like twenty twenty five. Well, so yeah, I think well that. That twenty three to twenty five area, you can start to see this this get better. Well, and then and I mean, you know, that j note from JP, hey, ten billion's great, right? Well, what was that note from JP Morgan where their their estimates were you needed seven hundred and fifty billion in investment between now and twenty thirty just to meet, uh, you know, meet demand or their projected demand, right? Um, 
But before we before we flip it over to Doomberg, I want to throw one more thing at you. Um, everybody has seems to be this this widely accepted view that, that as soon as the Russia Ukraine thing is over, uh, it's back to Russia just flowing oil like they always have. You made a really interesting point again in the office the other day, where you said, "Wait a second, U.S. producers, U.S. engineers, U.S. geologists are pulling out of there in mass, right?" probably and don't quote me tell me if i'm wrong but the last time you probably saw an exodus of that much u.s mine power right leaving an oil field you know just pulling out it was probably venezuela wasn't it and that didn't turn out well for them um what what do can russia keep up production levels with that brain drain um you know exiting the country right and left yeah, absolutely not. That That's something that I, I do think that's being a little overlooked. Like, obviously, you know, Western countries and oil companies buying less is going to have an impact, uh, especially short term, because it's going to take a long time to kind of reroute to India and China. Uh, but yeah, I mean, lo- losing the expertise is a big deal. And that obviously had a significant impact on Venezuela. It wasn't the only problem in Venezuela, but right. it's interesting you mentioned that because Chevron just got the green light to go back into into Venezuela. So that's, that's going to be one of the answers they're going to, it's, but again, it's going to be probably more like three to five years, but as long as they kind of play a ball, we'll probably see production go up there. You're seeing production go up in Argentina right now. They have some actually pretty impressive um, shale resources there, but you know, even, even places like England, they have, they have some pretty good shale resources and it's just a matter of kind of freeing them up regulatory and, you know, in the regulatory space. And there's nothing to do that. Like a, crisis that we're you know entering right now so i i think you'll even see production in europe have to necessarily increase in the next you know three years so doomberg we'll flip that to you then a the first part of that say you know any any different ideas or, or what what is your guys's take on how long yeah. of a problem this is to fix how long we're looking at elevated energy prices uh and then also you know, the impacts you see from, from the brain drain in the, uh, in, in the Russian oil fields. So that I would, I would lump the Russian oil field um, scenarios under what we would call the Zihan hypothesis, which, you know, any, <laughs> anytime we think we're being too this bearish, be cheerful. We, we, we just watch a Peter Zihan video and then we think, ah, maybe we could dial the bearish up a little bit more. But, um, you know, long term, we're quite optimistic. And um, we would say that, you know, in a wartime mindset, anything is possible. We have just gotten used to the bureaucratic malaise in the Western world that comes with the comfort of excess. Mm. And the political, the political consequences of the removal of that excess, back to uh, you know, points you made earlier, would, you know, we, we, went, we did the Manhattan Project and look at what we did in World War II from Pearl Harbor to you know, the dropping of the bomb. Um, that was an incredible turning of a very huge battleship in a very short period of time. And we could do the same here. We have the capacity to. So one of the things, again, back to our sort of crazy ways of thinking, if you draw a circle around Canada, the U.S., Mexico, Venezuela, and Trinidad and Tobago, uh, and maybe wrap Cuba in there as well, you have an unbelievable resource base to crack the world's energy problems uh, completely under our control. Um, with full cooperation, um, you know, the, the, we have decided not to build a Keystone pipeline. That doesn't mean that we can't. We have decided that we're going to sanction Venezuela. You know, um, I think a back-to-basics mentality in a wartime mindset, um, that, that 
if you draw the circle around that map, that is a devastatingly powerful economic force. And the only missing ingredient is, is political sanity. And at some point, the price of being politically insane will be the forcing function that equilibrates and restores back to the mean what we should be. And, and by the way, the nice thing about that, that, you know, that map that I've just drawn for you is it's all local. It's here. It's independent of what happens between Russia and China. Um, we have the resources, we have the means, we have the technology. By the way, there's shale deposits all over the world. The reason why nobody else has done it isn't because of technology. It's because of politics. Um, so, you know, between the the Great Plains of Canada and the U.S. and the, um, you know, the, the Trinidad and Tobago is one of the most uh, economically self-sufficient places on earth. And the only reason why it is is because they have decided to um, wisely exploit the uh, the resources that the earth has provided that region. And there's no, the only thing stopping us from doing that is is politics. And given enough pain, politics will change. And so in a way, um, that potential is the boundary forcing function of the insanity of our current political system. And ultimately, it will be overthrown uh, if it gets too crazy. That, that you know... <sighs> If we're talking about uh, politics and, and policy, uh, the word rational probably has nothing to do or has no place in that conversation. But but the interesting thing to me, Doomberg, following up on what you were just saying was when I look at the globe today, the greatest threat to the green energy movement is the green energy movement, is it not? Correct. I, I, it's path, just – go ahead. The path function matters. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. And <laughs> – and so this is what we've been writing about forever. Um, and by the way, we could lead, you know, we, we put a piece out, I believe it was called, It's Time to Get Serious About Energy, where we, we reemphasized our political policy. There's no excuse for the fact that the U.S. has let China become the dominant producer of polysilicon. Um, we have the world's most abundant natural gas fields. Natural gas is the critical input into the production of solar panels. Um, the production of a solar panel is basically taking sand and turning it into pure silicon. And the only thing you really need for that is energy. So we could co-locate polysilicon plants in Appalachia and feed the world with all the solar it needs on our terms. The only reason why we have allowed um, the Chinese to take this market over, and we were in that market when it happened, so this is speaking to our wheelhouse, um, is because we have nimbyism here and um, we don't like, uh, you know, to permit new heavy industry. And so um, we just allowed um, faraway lands to do the quote unquote dirty work for us, not realizing the erosion of our geopolitical power that would come with it. And so, you know, in a way, the situation in Ukraine for all of the catastrophic negative consequences to the people involved might be just the wake up call we need to get serious about doing the things here that we need to do. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's one of the, you know, one of the things that we've thought from the very beginning that rational energy policy, in my opinion, is only a matter of time and that we can either choose to adopt it or it will force us to adopt it. Right. Uh, if, if, if nothing other than just that beautiful pressure relief valve, which is the democratic system. And, and I've long said that, look, I don't really care what the, I don't care what your sentiments are. I don't care what your philosophy is. I don't care what you think the path function is. 
you know, you look at the elections that are coming up in November, if consumers are looking at seven to $10 at the pump, it's going to be a bloodbath, right? Is it not? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Chase, um, just to follow up on that, on the, on the green movement, um, and look, I and I know both. I know that all three of us, based on extensive conversations off the air, I know that all three of us are clean energy guys. I, I know that all three of us. I mean, pinecone macro. You know what I mean? We 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 like trees. We like clean air. Like who does? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's some whack jobs out there that you know, do, you know, that want to just emit. You know, who you know, who knows? But I'm just saying in general. I think all of us can agree that hey. You know, we want a cleaner environment, but it, it's just it is so odd to me the extre- the extremes that they've driven this movement to where, again, they have become their biggest threat. Right. Um, we, do you just see that as just, Chase? Are you kind of in line with me and Doomberg on that? Do you just see that as kind of a an inevitability of democracy or, you know, how do you how do you see this playing out? I mean, for instance, if we want to adopt a sane uh, energy policy, um can we do it in the current setup politically? I mean, is it feasible for Biden to pivot that way? Is it is it feasible for him to quit trying to scapegoat uh, oil companies? Or is this just as simple as this is going to persist until those people are thrown out of office? I mean, I, I do think it's possible. I think you've seen significant shifts. Not not enough yet, but you'll it'll it'll continue because of of, of, of the pain. But you know, nuclear is definitely having a bit of a, a reawakening moment um, globally. So I think I think it's, it is becoming obvious that we can have that. I it just has to become more obvious that the things that have been sold as the solutions really aren't. Um, so I mean, at the end of the day, the reality is, if you want a clean environment, you have to respect energy density and if we can find our way back to respecting energy density, and I think we will, um, then yeah, yeah, like we can we can have that kind of solution. Now, does that mean you know the political left globally is going to stop you know b- publicly bashing fossil fuels? Probably not, but uh, they're also going to continue to use them because they know they have to, and they're going to you know they will pivot, and hopefully they eventually pivot to things that make sense instead of some of the projects, obviously that we've you know, kind of highlighted over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. But those those projects are getting more expensive because of this reality and, and, and more difficult to finance. So I, I do think you can, you can still have that that okay. move. Um, one thing I do want to mention real quick was I, I just love the, the point that Doomberg made about sort of the abundance we have just in our hemisphere. I think that really dovetails nicely with uh, Jay Pulaski's tripolar world kind of framework and where the Americas have like a regional deepening and then the same happens for Europe and, and for Asia. I think, I think it all makes sense. I think kind of a, a reassertion of, of the, the U S paying more attention and, and having deepened relationships in our own hemisphere is something that is definitely going to come out of this. And I just thought that was really well said. Mm. Okay. So let, let, let's pivot a little bit. Um, I, I think we've covered energy at, at great lengths I want to hear uh, from both of you, and we'll start with Chase and then throw it to uh, Doomberg. Um, what are, because I think one of the other things that maybe people are starting to wake up from or wake up to uh, and starting to realize is that this is not a problem that is exclusive to energy markets. Um, you know, that w- when we talk about high grading of, um, you know, of oil wells and all that, 
it, when you look at the commodity cycle really coming out, uh, I guess you had a run into 2011, but since then, and I can speak to this, having family members in the mining industry and grown up in it, that virtually every commodity out there has been high grading for almost the last decade, right? Meaning the cost of the goods that they've been selling, the cost of the commodities are not really reflective of the underlying cost. Um, You know, I'm assuming both of you agree with that, and I I think you do. But let's focus in with both of you a couple commodities and a couple situations that might be just as uh, uh, acute as the energy shortage what chase what commodities do you see right now that are going to be pivotal going forward that are uh, uh you know acutely underinvested in uh and that the world is going to wake up to yet another problem what are those things outside of energy that you think we should be looking at the most you know with the greatest eye yeah, so I know Doomberg has a lot to say on agriculture, and I do too. But I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that for him because I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Well, he's I, a chicken, something... right? Agriculture means a lot more to him, man. It's closer to it's closer to yeah, the, those those, closer feet, to those the feed prices are a problem. That's yeah. right, man. Um, but but I think you know that that's a big one for me, and I've, I've some I've written about the, the fertilizer crisis for a long time. I know Doomberg has as well. He's one of the OGs there. Um, but but I'll, I'll focus on metals because metals is an area that it, it's really kind of similar to oil. Uh, it, does, it gets less less you know attention, but you just look at something like copper, where I, you just do the math on on where supplies at, where demand's going to be, especially if all these uh, you know kind of energy transition projects were realized, or even you know a, a tiny fraction of them, frankly, then then we don't have enough. Uh, and copper. You know, we're, we're talking about oil. Like, hey, I think you know this oil supply response can happen within you know three to five years, and that sounds like a long time, but compared to something like copper, where it can take fifteen years to get a mine up and running and producing, you know that that's worse. And we do have a couple of you know major mines coming on in the next couple of years, and I think that alone let people kind of fall asleep at the switch and not worry about it, because after those come along, you know, we it, it basically drops off. There's no more big projects, uh, in, in really, in the next decade. And the high grading is a major, major issue uh, for for copper. And you know, when a copper price goes up, they can you can you can kind of turn over more dirt to to get more, and like that's fine. But you know, when your energy and your labor inputs are are going through the roof, it it is it's not super straightforward to continue to inefficiently mine and and you know, kind of push out on on that on that curve. So. Metals in general, I, I think just about all of them are, are, are kind of an issue, but I think copper specifically is one that people should absolutely put on their radar because the supply and demand dynamics, especially after the next couple of years, are, they're, they're not pretty. Where do you think uranium compares in there? How do you, how do you assess that? I mean, that, that one's clearly just a massive supply deficit at the moment. Um, and the same thing, like it, it, you can't just flip a switch on a uranium mine. Um, so there there's a lot of uranium in the world like it, it's it's kind of like lithium like it's abundant it's just not necessarily easy to get to and easy to mine and the, the nimbyism that Doomberg talked about clearly a major issue um but you know there are some there are some big projects that can come online there are some big producers that can kind of you know ramp back up to what they could in the past um there is supply there but but same thing like it's not really there for the next you know three years three three years five years uh, the contracting cycle is going to mandate that we have a lot happen there fast, but 
it's like a lot of commodities where like you've already baked into the cake kind of a price spike because you let the supply and demand mismatch kind of already happen. So it, it, we don't have enough for the next few years for sure. Well, and these guys, the other thing that I've been thinking about is you want to talk about a long, hard winter. I mean, it's been like a nuclear winter for uranium miners, right? These guys aren't flush. They're not ready just to throw a bunch of money at investment and new projects and things like that, right? I mean, if you just think about the normal, and, and you guys can disagree with me if I'm wrong, but I'm just thinking about it in terms of being a normal business operator going, hey, we, we got to get a couple good quarters of profitability under our belt before we go out there and start thinking of investing. Um, is, would you agree with that? I mean, again, even if you, right, it's going to take these guys a while to ramp it back up, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the best time to invest was was you know two years ago and i guess yeah. the second best is, is today but we're not really getting enough even today yeah all right doomberg so what 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 and you've written extensively about it i know you've got several of these but what flip it over to you what are some of those things that you think that we're overlooking uh and and some maybe some supply shocks that are going to be coming in areas that might surprise people so I'm going to pivot to optimism here, and, and this is where in the Western Hemisphere, like we talked about, where we have a huge advantage, and all we need is very minor changes that could happen very quickly to take advantage of those changes, and that is in natural gas. Mm. Um, natural gas is um, super abundant here based on the technological progress of the shale, and even as we bump up our oil production, you get all that associated gas that you need to have a home for. The constraining factor for the uh, total utilization of natural gas as the cleanest of the fossil fuels and as a bridging technology to a world where our baseline energy comes from a combination of nuclear, clean burning natural gas, minimal amount of oil and um, renewables um, topping off um, is in fact literally just the building of pipelines um, so that we can um, uh, up, you know, offtake uh, the natural gas from those regionally constrained areas put them into a national pipeline grid, um, shuttle it over to an LNG export terminal so that we can relieve Europe of its dependence on Russia, um, convert that natural gas into fertilizer on the home front. Uh, we could power the, 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 the vehicles that do the mining with natural gas, you know, the technology needed to uh, replace, uh, you know, the, the internal combustion engine with with a fuel source of, of compressed natural gas is well known. There are no mm -hmm. inventions needed. It's just an investment cycle that's needed. And so um, the cleanest of the fossil fuel solutions happens to be the resource that the Western Hemisphere has the most abundance of. And the technical challenges to exploiting that abundance are all solved. It's literally just politics. And in the subset of energy projects, Completing a pipeline that's you know 95% done, like Mountain Valley, uh, is the quickest thing we can do. And I suspect, based on the deal that Biden signed today in Europe to commit to the flotilla of LNG carriers um, taking um, you know natural gas from the Appalachian region and from Texas over to Europe, um, we are going to see, hopefully, thankfully, finally, uh, some sanity in the regulatory approval process for the completing of those critical pipelines. And by the way, it's no, it's no accident that the environmental radicalists have targeted those pipelines um, in the courts um, because they view that as the, cre the sort of the key leverage point that can have the maximum amount of damage in the space um, in their perverse vision of how the world should be. Um, so I do think that literally all that's needed is, is a little political courage. 
And by the way, the leader to do it effectively and sustainably has to come from the progressive side. It has to be a Joe Biden type figure, because if the Republicans just steamroll the quote unquote opposition, um, that's just you know postponing the revolutionary fight down the road. Whereas if it's done under a Democratic leadership, I think the 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 sort of durability of that response is is much greater. God, that's going to be a tough one to sell, man. You know, at some point the price is high enough that you got to, you know, have your 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 moment where you stare down your your political allies, quote unquote, for the betterment of the country. That's political courage. So if Joe Biden and his team does not have political courage, then they need to be replaced because political courage is what is rate limiting, is what is constraining to the obvious solution we have an incredible abundance. You know, I listened to um, the CEO of EQT, Toby Rice, on um, Alex Epstein's podcast last fall. And he said, look, at $5 per million BTU natural gas, we have an, a limitless supply of natural gas in the U.S. And at $5 per million BTU natural gas, that's the equivalent of $30 a barrel oil. Like, we think, we think $5.50 natural gas is expensive. That's not expensive. I could tell you what, $100 per million BTU natural gas at uh, the Dutch TTF terminal, that's the equivalent of $600 a barrel oil, okay? <laughs> so, like, we have it here, we, and when you wrap in Canada, and you wrap in Mexico, and you wrap in Venezuela, and you wrap in Trinidad and Tobago, look, the, the, the National Oil Company of Mexico is poorly run. It's undercapitalized. Uh, the National Oil Company of Venezuela, it's poorly run. It's undercapitalized. Uh, we have that expertise. We have that capital. If we just got smart about drawing a circle around the home front um, and and working with Canada as opposed to you know trying to proactively kill critical pipeline arteries, um, we, there's the answer is simple and it's here and it just requires political courage. And ultimately, there will come a point where the pain is the mother of the courage. Yeah, well, that's Chase. That's something that you and I have talked about a lot off air was that and I we said this earlier, but the good news is, is this problem will get solved. Right? The bad news is, is we just have no way of telling how much pain uh, will be have to will have to be endured. And what it sounds like that both of you are saying, and I'll let you both answer this, is that it, even if we adopt now, if we start doing the right things, I would expect market sentiment to shift a little bit, which, which would probably pad things somewhat. But even if we started doing the right things, it sounds like we're still probably looking at a tough run of, you know, one and a half to three years. Would you agree with that, Chase? Yeah, that makes sense to me. I just want to say I really enjoy optimistic Doomberg. That's, that's good. Yeah, it's not so doomy. <laughs> it's not so doomy. But do you, Doomberg, do you, would you agree with that? That, that really regardless of, of what the pace of that yeah. – is sanity or waking up that we're probably still looking at a one and a half to three year rough cycle as far as it relates to energy prices. And let me get even more optimistic. If we truly <laughs> believed it was just a year and a half, the level of enthusiasm and the euphoria that would come with that would make that time period much shorter. Yeah. If, yeah. if we unleashed the full power, look, the U S is the greatest country on earth. Yep. Um, I, I, and um, there's a reason. We have many, many natural advantages. We have, you know, centuries of capitalistic thought, risk-taking, um, rewarding of risk capital. Um, if we unleash the power, if we just got out of the way, back to your point about, you know, filled airlines and people traveling. And, you know, I, I, Tony Greer is a mutual friend, I think, of all, all three of us. Yeah. Um, 
we spent some time in Nashville with Tony Greer, and and uh, he's a great guy. He's one of my favorite people. And you know, the the disconnect between the the travel pain in the ass, pardon the language, and hanging out at you know um, a a country western bar in Nashville with Tony, where the place was packed, the music was great. It was Kid Rock's place in Nashville, and you know. The next morning, we get on a plane, and um, one of the passengers is a little unruly because he refused to pull his mask over his nose. And so they literally turned the plane around and and brought us back to the to the gate, and they removed that passenger and his companion, and we were all delayed by 30 minutes. Um, the night before was the life on offer, and the morning on the plane was the life that we currently have. And I know which one is going to win. You can't keep the human spirit down. Um, so if if we said we're going to unleash the docks, we're going to do everything necessary. The American ingenuity is going to be unleashed. It wouldn't that year and a half would feel like pleasure compared to the mindset we have today. Well, I think we have a really good metric for that too. And and I do not want to get into a vaccination conversation, right? But look at. It, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. Just look at the time sequences and you know how how long they took. But remember, remember the estimates of how long it'd take to come out with a vaccine, right? And then look how fast we, we were having this conversation in the office just the other day, sitting there going, "Look, if you unleash the power of the American economy and you quit criminalizing these guys and you tell them, hey, all right, guys, leash is off, go fix this problem,' I think that the entire world would be shocked at how quick they'd get it fixed, wouldn't they?" Yeah, absolutely. That, so that's that's a perfect way of explaining it with the, you know, how fast we created an, an effective vaccine. That was this that just shows you what we can do when we put our mind to it. And going back to what Doomberg said with like Manhattan Project, anytime the world and, and America specifically takes something, you know, serious uh, and scarcity is, has a great way of making things serious, then then, yeah, you can you, you can accomplish a lot in, in a very compressed time frame. And the amount of sacrifice I'm, you know, I am willing to endure if I know there's a light at the end of the tunnel is vastly higher. Oh yeah, be right because you see a way out. So that's my point. You might say, you know, in the worst case scenario, we have a year and a half to suffer. In my scenario, where we have political leadership with courage, and we unleash the totality of the resources, technology base, education base, uh, morality, and uh, motivation of of the. Western, you know, hemisphere worker, Canada, U.S., Mexico, Venezuela, Trinidad and Tobago, Cuba. Um, there's no way that year and a half is going to feel like year and a half. It's going to come a lot quicker than you think. And, and you know, that is actually, again, one of the themes of Doomberg is we are short-term pessimists, long-term optimists. Um, and we hope that by writing and pointing out the short-term pessimism that we can somehow in our own small infinitesimal way accelerate the and catalyze the realization of the optimism then that's worth doing well i can just tell you from my my vantage point if 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 you saw some type of announcement like that where you where you realized that the government was getting serious about it that they were unleashing the american engine um i i would upon announcement of that i i would scale back drastically in, in our positions i would pull back not completely but i i would just because, you know, markets are forward-looking, Doomberg, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, if you, want to, if you want to soften this problem really quick, just let the dog off the leash, for God's sake, right? 100%. Yeah. All right, fellas. Well, you've already given me so much time, but I want to get some closing thoughts from each of you. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. But 
what, what, Chase, if you just take a take a minute here or however long you'd like to to add to anything that that you think we may have brushed over. <laughs> But most importantly, things that we need to be keeping an eye on um, that we haven't covered so far. Anything that fits that bill? Yeah, we, we something I've talked to you a little bit about, but just keeping an eye on, on kind of keeping with the theme of you know the, the Americas. Keeping an eye on Latin America, it's it's kind of unbelievable how much it's outperforming most of the rest of the world this year. And it goes to show you, like I mean, there's there's just always a bull market going on somewhere. The the Brazilian real has broken out in a big way against the dollar this week. Um, Brazilian equities and, and just Latin American equities have, have had a great run. You know, they, there's a lot of natural resources in, in Latin America. And I think you're starting to kind of feel that. And they've already done most of their you know, monetary tightening, um, as it were, whereas we're, we're kind of just getting started. So I think there, there are some real tailwinds there. So just something that for folks to keep in mind that, you know, they're, even when one part of the world or a lot of the part of the world's kind of struggling so, somewhere is doing well. It's that sounded dangerously close to Jim Cramer chase, but we're going to let you slide on that. <laughs> I need you to edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> Doomberg. All right, man. What, what else have we not covered that you think we need to, and, and the listeners need to be aware of and, and, and you kind of give us your version. So back to my point about, about um, Biden being a realist and the political balls that he's juggling. I think we're beginning to see, and this is a milestone sort of signpost that we're looking for in our, our research, our writing, and our communications to our clients, is um, the cultures can only move so quickly. And I do believe that the political left progressives need to be sort of onboarded with the concept that natural gas is green. Mm-hmm. And I think that the press conference this morning in Europe and Brussels uh, between Biden um, and his counterpart in the EU where um, this joint commitment and task force around uh, American LNG replacing Russian natural gas pipeline um, is critically important. And, and I do think that um, if we begin to see this sort of shift in the next few weeks towards roping in natural gas and hopefully nuclear power as part of sort of the green ESG stamp of approval, that that will be an indication that the key people around the the Biden administration are in fact beginning to open up a physics textbook and might be um, trying to reorient their base to a more sane energy policy. Which, frankly, I don't care about the politics. I care about the policy. Mm-hmm. I would we would very much welcome that. One, one thing I do want to one thing yeah, I want to add real quick, Zach. An, an important point here is like the political angle here is. You know, Doomberg was talking about Appalachia for the polysilicon, you know, attaching it to nat gas. You think about the, the left behind parts of the country and the parts of the country that are very much swing swing states, have a lot of independence. Most of them are states that have a lot of a lot of resources. So, it, you know, this can make a lot of sense for them politically um, as a way to, you know, re- reclaim the, the Rust Belt or, you know, put a real yep. stamp on the Rust Belt. And then even Texas itself, that's, you know, my home state. Texas is becoming more and more of a real battleground and obviously oil and gas, they're all just going to, you know, kind of move to the political right, just a knee jerk reaction. So if you can bring them on board a little bit, you can kind of go a little farther at making it a real battleground in the future. So they have, they have reason to do this. Yeah, no. And it's, there's all good reasons. One, one last question I'll throw at both of you regarding the LNG. My understanding has always been that we, obviously we have enough, what are the constraints from us sending? We, we, I, I, my understanding was that if we go the LNG route from us, right, if we were to try to fill in that gap for Europe, that uh, 
it would be at a, a substantially higher price point than they're currently getting from Europe. How, 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 is that correct? And then what what is that? What, how does that change the dynamic? I mean, I'm I'm assuming they're getting it from Russia now because it's much cheaper to send it via pipeline than it is to liquefy it and put it on a ship and send it over there. So what would that do to the cost structure if we stepped in and tried to start filling that supply gap? So I, I could take this one. The natural gas market is not global because of the points you just made. Um, any investments we make now to um, to try to alleviate the tactical issues we're confronted with will continue the sort of um, the, the, the march towards making natural gas a global market in the way that oil is. Um, the rate limiting constraint is export capacity in the U.S. and liquefaction capacity. And I don't know how they're going to square that circle. Um, but, you know, it's not just going to be U.S. LNG. Obviously, the U.S. is leaning on Qatar. Australia is a big exporter of LNG. The real unanswered question to me in all of this is, what does this mean for our allies, Japan and South Korea? I know what it means for China. It means less LNG. Uh, but for Japan and South Korea, who we, we rely on for a lot of things, um, not the least of which is in, in the electronic sector, um, and also for geopolitical support in our uh, stance vis-a-vis -vis China, Taiwan, um, the unanswered questions are, where is that incremental LNG going to come from? And, and um, so that's going to be a challenge. But again, if you unleashed us, um, it would take some time, but it could be done. But the, the constraining factor is LNG export capacity. We are running full throttle already today. Companies like Chenier, um, you know, but now is the time to start approving those projects and to signal to the industry that um, we're dead serious about this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this uh, for the long haul. And once they're built, by the way, there's nothing better than owning a grandfathered project that's difficult to permit. Uh, and so, um, yeah. you know, I do, I'm pretty optimistic in the short term that some of these projects might finally get the green light. Uh, some, there were some permits that got green, got the green light in the last like week or two uh, on the Gulf, I think, to, I think there were like, existing uh, export terminals where they allowed, you know, a couple more trains to open up in a few years. So it's already starting to happen. Well, I, I, I like, uh, I like the mix here, right? We, we talk about the issues, but we also talk about how the, the problems, you know, they take a little bit of time, but they're relatively easy to fix if, if we can get some, you know, rational thinkers. And like you said, Doomberg, you made a great point, the political will or the political courage. I got to be honest with you. If I'm handicapping this, uh, seeing a surge in political courage, is, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Um, I just, I, I'm not going to hold my breath. I haven't seen real political courage in quite a while. I can't remember the last time. Um, but anyway, fellas, I, I can't thank you both for coming on enough. And, and I think that this really encap encapsulates the entire scenario that we're looking at here, both on the commodity side and the energy side. Thank you guys so much as always for coming on. And you guys, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure our listeners know, but you can follow them on Twitter at Doomberg. Uh, hold on. It, it's at Doomberg, right? Uh, at Twitter? Doomberg T. T. That's right. At we Doomberg got a squatter. We got a squatter on Doomberg. <laughs> yes, so sucker. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah, we're going to have to apply the pressure to him too. Um, okay. So at Doomberg T and then with chase as always at Pinecone macro on Twitter, uh, both of them, we've got sub stacks for both of them. Doomberg, uh, give us the directions to your sub stack. I've got it. In my, I've got it in my bookmarks, but I don't know it off the top of my head. Sure. It's, it, that one is Doomberg at substack.com. And let me just say chase and, and Zach, it's been an absolute pleasure. We should make this a standing, uh, podcast. Happy to do it. Anytime you guys are willing to get together. I always learn something talking to other smart people in the space, and it's been a total blast. What a great way to end the week.
You bet, man. And I, you, I can guarantee you we'll take you up on that. Uh, Chase, your sub stack is... Oh, man, I don't even remember, but if you just look at Pineco Macro and Substack, it's on there. I think it's just probably just Pineco Macro and then dot Substack. Yeah, but you can find me at PineCoMacro.com, best way. Yeah, and you can shoot him a DM. All right, fellas, uh, thank you so much again. Great to have you on. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and you're going to want to pay attention because we've got some other great interviews coming up next week and the following week as well. I think it's Can't Miss Stuff. Anyway, thank you guys for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.